0: The following podcast contains explicit materials. It's Wednesday, April 11th, 2018. From Slate, it's the Gist, I'm Mike Pesca. With the announced resignation of House Speaker Paul Ryan at the end of his term, here is an interesting fact or occurrence. If you look at the presidential order of secession, other than Mike Pence was elected into the office, the next three slots on that order are people who have gone or will be going vice president he's up first then the speaker of the house ryan's going then the president pro tem of the senate that's orrin hatch he's announced his intention to leave number four is secretary of state who used to be rex tillerson and is now do you know who's fourth in line for the presidency john j sullivan acting secretary of State. Paul Ryan's legacy will be one thing that he is proud of, he cut taxes, and another thing he should be ashamed of, he grew the deficit. The two couldn't be more related because for all this supposed fiscal hawkery, he's really a tax cutter, full stop. Consequences be damned. He and all conservatives really have a line. Well, If spending were reined in, then there wouldn't be this huge deficit. That's true. And the man who eats a whole pizza and two apple pies every night can argue that it's not my gluttony that makes me fat. It's merely the fact that I'm not burning calories at a Michael Phelps-esque rate. But let's check with some conservative voices on the Ryan announced retirement. John Podhoritz of Commentary notes that Paul Ryan's number one accomplishment was taxes And the number two thing on his legacy was this horrible, horrible federal debt. And he writes, the Tea Party forms the hard schist of the Republican base, and it's clearly decided not to hold Trump accountable for his stewardship of budgetary matters. This means their concern for the issue of the exploding federal debt is now just a vague talking point every once in a while. And that is true. That is correct. And remember, Podhoritz comes not to bury Ryan, but to praise him in a similar vein. Here is Megan McArdle in the Washington Post. It is possible the words he cared deeply and passionately about the federal budget have never before been strung together in the English language. But if they had been written somewhere, it would have been about House Speaker Paul D. Ryan. The Wisconsin Republican cared about the federal budget The way teenage girls care about movie stars. The way Angelina Jolie cares about refugees. The way a dog cares about a bone. Yes, yes, yes. The way Steve Martin cared about that thermos. The way Lamar Odom cares about candy. The way Zuckerberg cares about having his team get back to you with that information. Teenage girls caring about movie stars. Yes, that of course is the medium of 2018 that teenage girls are obsessed with. When, when Megan McArdle wrote that, do you think she was thinking of which, which movie star? I'm going to guess Troy Donahue. And I don't want to even get into the close juxtaposition of Angelina Jolie caring about refugees and the dog and the bone. All right, I'm getting distracted with this horrible analogy. Sort of like a crow gets distracted by the glint of steel peeking out of the oxidized handlebar on a late model Schwinn. Yes, yes. Guess what? It is not surprising that a writer with such a paucity of analogy chops would also suffer from a deficit of logic. Paul Ryan cared about budgets. I would say like a serial killer cares about his victims. I mean, perhaps he obsessed over them, but he also slaughtered them. You know what he did with the budget, right? Perhaps he had a care surfeit, but it definitely led to a budget deficit. In any case, he won't be around anymore to grapple with the consequences. Ryan is going to spend more time with his children, who in their futures will be spending more time servicing the federal debt, more time than any generation before. On the show today, Mark Zuckerberg. We said we'd get back to you, just like he said he'd get back to you about his testimony, and we will. But first... She is the author of several collections of essays. Her latest is Look Alive Out There, Good Advice, The Funny Incisive, and as this conversation proves far-ranging, Sloane Crossley. Hey, all you true crime fans. This is Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morf. That book is fun to read. There's a new book of essays called Look Alive Out There. I'll tell you how fun it is to read. I was on Amazon earlier today, and this is among the most favorited books in the categories of cat supplies and medical devices. I'm not kidding about that. (laughs) Hello, Sloan.
1: Well, that is an amazing introduction. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for having me and my cat.
0: So, so <laughs> secretly here, <laughs> the the last thing we thought of, and I had this. Let's not leave it in the green room moment as we were talking about Pippin, and you make a Pippin reference in your uh, essay about being on Gossip Girl. I do, and the reference is in general what? <laughs> <laughs> the
1: reference is the hope is that you know if you are in the. Rarified position of being allowed to say two point five lines on a, on a national television show. That in those two point five lines, uh, somehow someone will turn around and say, "You're such a natural." Yeah. Or turn around and see that vague outline, or the, the line in the book is the vague outline of your high school production
0: of Pippin and your delivery. And Pippin is a good reference. What Pippin's else a could great it have humor. been?
1: Oh, gosh, well. You can't say cats really, but no, um, because they don't really is, do it in
0: high school too much. I
1: know. It, I'm trying to think with Oklahoma. Yeah. Our town.
0: Yeah. What is a high school play I was I was uh, the king. West side in story. No, too hard for a high school. It's a, really? so much dancing, I think. Yeah. Now your two point five lines on Gossip Girl include a grammatically tortured reference to the title of your last book of essays, right? Or your yes. first book of essays. Yes. Yeah. So what was it? It was it's
1: I, – I go on Gossip Girl and the the reason as I As one went, does. As one does. Basically, I'm at a book party. Yeah. And the book party is for a book that one of the characters has written that's a tell-all about the other characters. So the fictional characters are worried that this real book is about them on this fictional show – and I am playing my actual self, except not quite my actual self. I am sort of escorted over by a young lady playing a literary agent to some of the more regular cast members. The woman says, I'd like you to introduce you to Sloan Crosley. She's the best selling author of I Was Told There Be Cake. And I have to say something like, It's so nice to meet you. And they say, Yes. And then I say, I, Somehow bouncing off I Was Told There Be Cake, I say, Of which I am still in search of.
0: Of which that's almost like. Uh, it's
1: so contortious. Yes, yes. And it's not, and it's to sound grammatically correct, it's like you're doing like a triple sow cow to get there. Right. And you really just needed to walk. If, if, if that was just an essay about an appearance on Gossip Girl, mm-hmm. um, if you just look at it that way, then yeah, I milked three lines for about, you know, 5,000 words. It's more about this weird time period in my life, which was a bridge between having a day job and becoming a writer and actually trying out saying it and, and well, I, I wasn't even accustomed to the role really yet exclusively. Yeah. And the role
0: you were cast in in Gossip Girl?
1: Well, certainly that. Yeah. But the role I cast myself in is a, you know, full-time writer. And it was just sort of a strange thing to have to then play it with such
0: confidence. Was that transition period the thing that's stopping you was how big was a financial component to it? Oh, from quitting my job? Yeah.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I feel there's a, a, among the many fantastic Dorothy Parker quotes, uh, one of the simple ones is someone asked her, why write? And she said, you know, for money, dear. Yes. <laughs> uh, which is an unromantic <laughs> answer. Yes. I wasn't really comfortable quitting my job after two books. And it, it was so interesting when even people within the publishing industry would say, well, you have you know, two best selling books. You should quit your job. Yeah. I think you of all people see sales sheets of all people.
0: Yeah. You're working at the sausage factory with me.
1: How do you? Yeah. How are you asking these idiotic
0: questions? And it's also funny as, you know? <laughs> as if they're saying two best-selling books as if that's an actual unit of currency, yes. and they don't know yeah, what the yeah, phrase yeah. "best-selling I, books" I like translates to, to. That's
1: what I do when I'm late with my rent. I just yeah. explain it to my I have landlord. 2 best-selling books, and he says, "Oh well, I didn't realize." <laughs> also, do you need your sink fixed? I right. heard you did. You know, no, it's not how it works. And it's also um, it's a comfort level, and it's also when I finally hit the point. I mean, this is now like eight years ago at this point. Yeah, but I, I finally hit the point where it just got too awkward to do both jobs to support other people's work and the way I was doing it professionally as opposed to just now for fun. Because your day job was? I was a publicist. Yes. Thank you. Yeah, I was a book publicist. So my job was to call people up. And, you know, every once in a while, I'd have someone, you know, a very lovely problem, but someone say, no, you know, I'm not really interested in that reissue of Icelandic short stories. When's your next book coming out? Mm Mm-hmm. And I'd be like, oh, cool. It's so like a little Sophie's Choice every day. Yeah. Like, I'm calling from a random house phone. Please, yeah. you know. And then I just honestly realized that I wasn't doing enough justice to the actual work. And honestly, if I wanted to write a novel, I needed to quit. So I quit to write The Clasp, essentially, and then also knew that I would go back to essays as well.
0: So it's funny. The analogy would be as if, you know, David Bowie were the manager of lesser bands and trying to get them <laughs> manager, in, I don't want to say of a lesser band. Yeah, yeah. So you would be you would be pitching these people and the awkward moment is, but you're far more famous than they are.
1: <laughs> uh, normally not. That's funny. I mean, it was really sort of sometimes you feel like you have a certain station in the world and sometimes you're just in your apartment eating cheese and you only know it's raining because the mail is wet when you pick it up because you haven't been outside in a couple weeks and you don't smell so great.
0: Another argument
1: against not quitting your job. You know, these are all hypothetical, yeah, yeah. hypothetical <laughs> specifics here. But, you know, and, it's, and, and then the next day, someone wants you to come speak to students at a college. Yeah. It vacillates so wildly that you have to have a very sort of firm
0: sense of self. So you write about coming up against your limits, like when you went mountain climbing in Quito, Ecuador.
1: Yeah, there's an essay about um, I climbed the highest active volcano in that particular hemisphere.
0: In Ecuador, our hemisphere, but yeah. by accident, uh-huh.
1: just I apparently couldn't be bothered to Google it in advance. I just thought, oh, that'll be fun. I'll yeah, you know, <laughs> pick some wildflowers and I'll say I can say I went hiking and isn't that nice? And like flash forward, and I'm getting you know hypothermia and altitude sickness, and there's like crampons strapped to me, and I'm debating if I should swallow malaria pills because mm-hmm. what the hell is going to live up there anyway? Yeah, that piece is about a little bit about loneliness, a little. I mean, it's about the humor of travel in this, you know, sort of. Hostile, as in structure, mm-hmm. um, in, a, in a bunk bed, sort of shaking wildly and the, thinking no, about the, how ridiculous uh, it was. The the Holocaust Refuge. bunk beds, I believe you call I them. I call them Holocaust bunk beds. <laughs> and I also express in the essay that my my wish that there was a better way to describe them. Yeah. I mean, if you saw them, yeah. you'd be like, oh, well, yeah, that's what that insensitive,
0: is. Insensitive, and yet we all have a clear it's, ass picture of what they are. That is what yeah.
1: qualifies as insensitive. Yeah.
0: Oh, man. I believe you all say as if the Brady Bunch were filmed in Nazi Germany.
1: I might have said that. Yeah. Yes, I mean, that's what it looks like because there's so many of them. I just always have liked the idea of taking something that's objectively not that funny and making it funny.
0: In the the essay about climbing the mountain, you say, you know what? I could have used a friend. Mm. Most of the essays are you alone, aren't they?
1: They are because I feel like my humor definitely comes with a lot of interaction with strangers. I try to make myself like the the butt of the joke for the most part. That's a, and that's
0: a strong tradition among the type yeah, of humorist like you and Sedaris but and Efron. Sedaris Ephron also and,
1: has, to your question, the point of your question, um, you know, Efron was married and yes. Sedaris has Hugh. Hugh's always and there. Hugh's a yeah. really big character. And yeah. Hugh is also an incredibly humanizing character for him because he's quite human anyway and a generous, lovely man. But like, there's a guy who's not afraid of a Holocaust joke, you know, and you need somebody (laughs) to be the sort of foil there. I don't really have that. I mean, I do now, but my, you know, when I'm writing about most of my experiences, you know, I didn't, you know, get
0: married at 25. But also, I wonder, could it be the fact that if there's a person there, you're making jokes to that person? You're not processing it to the same degree As you are when you're alone and when you're processing it alone, it makes it more likely that it becomes something you write about, something you need to express to others on the page.
1: That's probably a good point. But also um, embedded in the question is a slight misunderstanding. I don't go into any of these things to write.
0: Really? Not one. So have you done things as extreme or crazy as climbing the mountain and not written about it?
1: Mm, Yeah. There was an essay that got cut out of this book, actually that I tried to write about about jumping off a cliff in Australia into um, a bay that potentially had sharks in it and definitely had rocks in it. Wow. This girl who I met in Australia who was really lovely who like talked me into doing it and was a friend of a friend and she was really great and we were only when we were walking sort of back through the woods in our wetsuits afterwards she mentioned that her mother had recently died and I said oh that's awful I'm I'm so sorry and you know what what happened and she said she died in a, a freak skiing accident and I thought that's interesting that I just let this person who has a very specific worldview right now mm-hmm. and is in mourning convince me to do this. Yeah. That's the moment when I thought this could be an essay, not because I thought I'm going to go jump off a cliff and write about it.
0: Sloane Crossley is the author of, well, so many things. Uh, I was told there'd be cake and the clasp, which was her book of fiction, or as we call it, a book. The new collection of essays is, look alive out there. I think supposed to be said like that. Look alive out there. Thank you, Sloan. Thank you for having me. And now the spiel. Mark Zuckerberg, millennial magnate, plugged in potentate, a yoga-practitioning humanist, who pitches his product as a means to heal the world, yet his trouble looking you directly in the eye, was before the Senate yesterday and the House of Representatives today. So we found out from the testimony yesterday that the coaching worked. His bullet points had potency. The Zuckerberg messaging was at least equal to the questions of our elected officials. Shares of Facebook surged yesterday. The street cheered Zuckerberg's appearance. And shares were up even more today, and that's probably more impressive as the market was down overall with the promised U.S. attack on Syria. One day, market moves are really, really stupid, but I cite them only as a referendum on the wisdom of the crowd, or at least the financial crowd. What they're saying is Zuckerberg won. And let's recount what the conventional wisdom was about Zuckerberg's testimony. Here were Charlie Cook and Rich Lowry on Meet the Press. Senator Rounds, I mean, this is going to be like uh, Custer's last stand. I mean, this is going to be look little bighorn. I mean, this is going to be ugly. So I agree with Charlie. Zuckerberg will get roasted. And the, the issue here is Facebook has a tremendous amount of data, and there's one man. makes a decision about how it's used. And that's Mark Zuckerberg. And I think that regime one way or the other is ending. On MSNBC yesterday, Washington Post reporter Tony Rahm set the scene this way. Well, lawmakers are kind of out for blood here, politically speaking. Well, if they were out for blood, they didn't give themselves enough space to draw their swords, meaning the format of the hearings on both days strongly favored a witness who could offer a facile answer, who could dodge a rough question, who could then promise a follow-up at some later time. Today, the representatives also adhered to this impotence-insuring format of four minutes each, and much of that time was spent complaining about how little time they got. Mr. Zuckerberg, I only have a few more seconds. No, I I don't have
1: time for a long answer, though. When did Facebook learn? That. That you take case. that
0: question for me. My time has expired. Can you take that question for me and, and get me that answer back, please? We will. Okay, thank you very much. I yield. Gentlemen's time's expired. That was Bobby Rush, Anna Ishu, and Bill Johnson. Beyond the lack of time, there really seemed to be a lack of understanding of how Facebook works. We know we don't want our data mined and sold and we know we don't want to be tracked. But what does that mean and what are the parameters? Members of Congress got tripped up from time to time, allowing Zuckerberg to opine calmly. The guy never lost his cool and he would reframe the question in ways preferable to him. Here, Jane Schakowsky, Democrat of Illinois, actually checks over her shoulder with a staffer to make sure that she got the phrase right.
1: Uh, Let me ask, is your response that exactly the protections that are guaranteed, um, not the, what did he say?
0: Elsewhere, many congressmen and women, as the senators before them, professed an admiration for Facebook, if not an expertise. John Shimkis, Republican of Illinois. Uh, I just got my mother involved on an iPad. Wonderful. Debbie Dingell of Michigan bragged that her husband, former Congressman John Dingell, had become the 91-year-old king of Twitter. Also wonderful. But there were few moments that would leave a reform-minded American confident that Zuckerberg recognizes the extent of the potential danger that his site represents. To hear him tell it, mistakes were made, And those mistakes were essentially siloed and new practices are in place. No need for regulation, no need for specific laws to force Facebook's hand. Also undermining the effort of the House, like the Senate before it, was that there was not one consistent complaint. Makes sense. Facebook's a behemoth. It's like an octopus and different sides took issue with different arms. Facebook was called to account for malpractice in the areas of Privacy, censoring conservatism, enabling the opium epidemic, being inadequate when it comes to its uh, own diversity. Team, and this does not reflect America. Can you improve uh, the, the the numbers on your leadership team to be more diverse? That was North Carolina's G.K. Butterfield. And then there were a number of questions about one specific incident where Facebook temporarily disallowed an ad that featured Jesus on a cross. What happened to the the person that took down the Franciscan University ad? If Facebook is being questioned about everything, they're being questioned about nothing. When the cigarette executives testified, it was because cigarettes cause cancer, and they knew it, and they covered it up. When BP executives were dragged through a mud of their own making, it was because of an oil spill. When Jacques Nasser, CEO of Ford, was filleted, it was because tires on SUVs were exploding. They didn't ask him about emissions. They didn't ask him about miles per gallon. They asked him, why are your tires exploding? Now, I understand that it's harder when you have Facebook, when you have Zuckerberg specifically in front of you for the first time. Facebook is an everything company, and you can criticize them for lots and lots of things. And I also understand and acknowledge that the title and the purpose of the hearing was data protection. And also that there was a single incident that everyone or most people were talking about data mining done by Cambridge Analytica. But this was a very diffuse hearing. This was not a pointed exercise. And there is no specific legislation with teeth that different senators and representatives were championing. If this hearing were a logical argument or even a well-written essay, you'd wonder what the thesis was. Was it, Facebook can be better? Was it, Facebook should work slower and break fewer things? Was it, Facebook, can you explain the internet to me and my 90-year-old mom who uses an iPad? The fact is that Facebook might just be rewiring our minds, altering our perceptions, and reconfiguring our realities. That's not an exploding tire. That's not a uh, top-kill operation to cap the blowout preventer. Remember that from the BP spill? What I'm saying is that this is so different, and the stakes are so big, I just didn't see any evidence that we, as Americans, have a mechanism to reform this company. After two days of hearings, I think we're pretty much where we started which is hoping this maybe sweet-natured, smart kid who does yoga and might be raising his daughters as Jewish Buddhists will have the insight and will to prevent his machine from destroying us all. And that's it for today's show that just was produced by Pierre bien who cares about the French national soccer team like the French national soccer team cares about owning up to whenever it commits a handball. Mary Wilson, just senior producer, cares about journalism, like Randy Jackson cares about pitchiness. Steve Lickteig, executive producer of Slate podcasts, cares about the right kind of barbecue sauce, like Damian Hurst cares about the right mix for shark formaldehyde. The gist: we care about lazy analogies, like E. e. Cummings cared about lowercases. Upur de Peru, and thanks for listening.
1: Just to deviate for a second, one of these essays is about this weird inner ear disease I have. And to come for me at some point, a doctor, after I've been through all the stuff, a doctor says, well, you know, Van Gogh had the same thing. <laughs> with no sense of irony yeah, or humor whatsoever. Yeah. I'm like, are you kidding me with this information? Look how that turned out. Yeah.